That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about ending the filibuster because H.R. 1 is coming down the road. The For the People Act, the thing that would render illegal much of what Georgia just passed through their legislature, for example. It would establish national standards for elections, which Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution allows for. In fact, just to make that point, let me pull out my handy pocket Constitution here. Article 1, Section 4, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations. So, <laughs> you know, people are going, oh, it's not federal takeover of our elections. Now, we've had federal standards for elections for a long, long time. It's in the Constitution. But anyhow, that's where all this focus is being put about, you know, saving, saving the world by ending the filibuster. But frankly, I think that there's a bigger issue, and that is that 90% of all the food on the planet, the, the planet, what's called the terrestrial net primary production, the planet's ability to produce food, has been consumed or degraded or destroyed by humans, that as a consequence we're eliminating nature. If you add up the weight of all the animals, what you find is that you know, we represent about 90% of that total weight, which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. And not to mention global warming. I mean, just Think for a minute about the world that our children and our grandchildren are inheriting and how radically different it's going to be. Tennessee was underwater, right? In Nashville, this from uh, MSN, Microsoft Network, unrelenting rainfall in Nashville turned roads to rapids, sweeping vehicles off the streets and drowning a motorist who was carried away. One of at least four people killed during a storm that continues to threaten the city on Sunday, the authorities said. They note a flood in 2010 that was among the worst in the city's history had 13 inches of rain over a 36-hour period, leaving 26 people dead and took months to clean up. You know, a lot of the horrors of the bill that was passed by the Georgia legislature, and frankly, this got 
This is my personal conspiracy theory, which and I, and, I, and I may well be wrong, which is probably why it got very little national coverage. But I think one of the reasons that the Georgia, you know, the, the ban the water, ban the drinks, and shut down mail-in voting and all this other stuff that and oh, and by the way, uh, allow the Republican Party to take end Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, get him out of the picture, and let political people. The Republican Party appoint the chairpersons or a single person who can replace the entire voting board. The, I forget the name of it, but you know, unique to Georgia. The Elections Commission, the local group that is overseeing the elections on a county by county or precinct by precinct basis, just blow them out of the water and replace them with a Republican politician. And that Republican politician can decide how many hours the polling places are going to be open how many machines they're going to have, whether they're going to have 10-minute lines or whether they're going to have 10-hour lines, whether the votes are even going to be counted, how they're going to deal with provisional ballots, whether they're going to not count people who are voting in the wrong precinct because they got bad information from some right-wing group that's you know push polling them or something like that, or they, they're seeing these uh, you know phony baloney ads. I mean, you know, anyhow, the reason I think that they did this the day they did and it went through the House, the Senate, and the governor signed it all within less than nine hours, was not just the governing by surprise part that we talked about last week when I was reading to you from Milton Mayer's book, but also because one, one of the worst thunderstorms in a long time was on its way. And I think they knew if we get this bill signed today, the news tomorrow is going to principally be about you know, all the people who lost their homes and the cars that got flooded and the trees that are down and the power lines that are out. People in Georgia aren't going to be paying attention to what we did. And sure enough, that's what happened. But the bottom line is this is all climate change. We are looking at the leading edge of an unimaginable disaster. We have CO2 levels right now in the United States that the last time this world saw them, there was not one single human on this planet. Three million years ago. Our species is only 300,000 years old. In our most modern form, we're really only about 10,000 years old, maybe 50,000. And three million years ago, when we had this much carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, the oceans were 90 feet higher than they are now. Parts of our country and parts of the world that are producing food were desert. Some of the deserts were jungles. I mean, everything was different. You think democracy is going to survive that? You think civilization is going to survive that? That's the world our grandchildren are coming into. So we've got to stop polluting the world. We've got to back away from this, and we've got to start remediating the pollution that we've already done with things like regenerative agriculture and you know, possibly some technology solutions. And what's standing in the way of all of that? The filibuster. You want to save the world? You want to provide a decent planet for our children and our grandchildren and their children? Should they have any? I mean, just look out 100 years from now when our grandchildren or our children's children are coming into age. It's not that, I mean, it's not that far away, really. Is this the world we want to give to them? So, yeah, ending the filibuster so that we can pass 
legislation that will give everybody voting rights is absolutely essential. Ending the filibuster so that we can do something about, you know, Jim Crow, you know, anti-voter operations in multiple states for being run by the Republican. Very important stuff. Ending the filibuster so that we can pass legislation that might rein in and regulate some of America's most toxic monopolies and the way that banksters and investment houses rip us off and all these other things. You know, that's important stuff. But ending the filibuster so that we can get something like the Green New Deal, so that we can actually start doing something about climate change in a way that might help America as a byproduct or to help America, but do something about climate change as a byproduct. I'll take either one. That seems to me like existentially important. You know, yes, we want to strengthen Social Security. Yeah, we'd love to have Medicare for all. Those are all important things in this moment. But we're talking about the future viability of the human race, or at least human civilization. What we call civilization. We've got to end the filibuster. Or at least reform it so that it can no longer be used as an obstacle to legislation, that it just provides a senator with with an opportunity to pontificate at length. Welcome back. Uh, Joe Biden is giving a talk. He's basically laying out that, you know, we've got these variants rampaging through America. We talked about this last week, that what is sweeping Europe right now is not just on its way here. It's here. It's, it's going through the upper Midwest, Michigan in particular right now, the British variant. The South African variant has popped up in a few places in some of our larger cities. We have our own homegrown variants that are happening here in the United States. There's the Brazilian variant as well. So he just said there's a lot of grandparents that would love to safely hug their grandchildren, and now they can because they're getting vaccines they couldn't a short time ago. And so I'm glad that he's out there, that he's doing these talks and he's being more available to the American people. It's something that's really needed. We need presidents to do their own PR. But all that said, let me pick up some of your phone calls and see what you have to say about the issues of the day. Steve in Bombay, New York. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. Long-time listener, at least a dozen years, second-time caller. But uh, I was thinking that you might want to increase your focus a little bit. You know, sometimes the professor gets annoying questions from the students, so this is one of those. I appreciate your focus on what the right has done, but as a Democrat, I believe that my congressional leaders should be my advocates. And one of the things I've learned, a couple of things I've learned from you over the years, A, the Gang of Eight gets intelligence report. B, there's immunity speaking from the floor. So my question is, once the Woodward interview came out and Trump exposed all this stuff, my question is, did the congressional Democrats know any of this? If they did know it, then they didn't say anything. If they didn't know it, Why not raise holy hell and say, hey, you know, because I'm reminded of the torture report that Feinstein put out, basically saying uh, we didn't know they were really torturing people. So I guess that's my my question is, why didn't they say anything or, you know, like that? So, Steve, I get everything you're saying, except I'm a little confused here. You said if they know this and why didn't they say it? 
And I don't know what the this and the it are that you're specifically oh, referring they, if, to here. If, if they knew Trump was lying, lying about the contagiousness of the disease and how downplaying it. Oh, Democrats have been yelling about that since since April, March, April. of Well, since April of last year, when Trump started with his reopen the country on April 17th. I guess what I'm looking for is some is Schumer or Pelosi to say, you know what? We have conflicting intelligence information that they did say that thing is not true. They did say that repeatedly. The problem was because they didn't control, well, they controlled the House of Representatives for, for some of that time. You know, it was difficult for them to hold hearings where they could say, okay, what's going on here? If my recollection is correct, the Democrats held the House, well, I'd have to go back and look. But but in any case, I would okay, like I to see, I, kind of in the I'm spirit of what you're saying, <laughs> Steve, I would like to see the Democrats at the very least doing the kind of theater Although I think it would be productive theater because the whole point of theater is to, you know, entertain and inform political theater. And the entertainment part has to be there or people don't pay attention to it, which is why, you know, Republicans were so successful with Benghazi and with Hillary Clinton's emails. I would like to see that same kind of political theater being done around Republican complicity in the death of a half a million Americans. And not just Donald Trump, because he was, you know, he was the principal evangelist, but he was assisted in this by famously high profile. I mean, you know, Rick, Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome. I mean, Christy Nome, when she had, she said, uh, you know, hey, motorcycle, 600,000 motorcyclists coming from all over the country to South Dakota. So you can all get together and infect each other and then go back home. And, and I mean, the scientists have said that 260,000 cases of COVID came out of that outside of South Dakota. You know, which would which would presumably be, you know, uh, 2,600 deaths anyway at a 1% death rate or, you know, four, five, six thousand deaths as you get into the three two three percent death rate. It depends on the age group it's hitting. And, you know, she was OK with that. You had the governor of, of uh, Georgia. You had the governor of, well, look at Texas, you know, Greg Abbott down there saying, oh, yeah, no, it's all good. You know, it's a and the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, saying, yeah, you know, those of us over 70, we're willing to die for the economy, essentially. And in every case, there were Democrats calling them out. In every case, there were Democrats saying this is crazy. They just were not doing it with a singular united voice, which is the unfortunate thing. The Republicans are really good at coherent messaging. The Democrats, you know, not so much. And I really so, love the idea you know, of a shadow government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we are. Yeah, indeed. Okay, Although thanks, right okay. at the moment, we don't need that. Yeah, thank you, Steve. We should have done that during the Trump administration. Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind? Yeah, the Trump administration, as I see it, you were here to the seven deadly sins, Tom. Yes, sir. Greed, lust, envy. I see Trump practicing those deadly sins. Even now, yeah. this administration, the top, the top one, in my opinion, greed filters all of them. They intertwine, and uh, that's how I see it. You know, we're all affected yeah. by those. I try not to practice it, the opposite. And I don't know prayer. What I try to do, St. Francis of Assisi. I'm not a religious guy. When I was introduced to that prayer, wow. I see you practicing, Tom. Your guess is by yes. giving that you shall receive. That's the antidote to Trump. But they're so infected by this greed. And that's all I got to say. And as far as the pandemic, maybe you can comment on it. I see similarities 
with the smallpox epidemic with the blankets. Give it to the Redskins. Remember that? I don't know what year that took place, but I see similarities. Let the blue states burn. They're black, red, brown, who cares? Make America white again. I hate to say that. As far as your callers, hang in there. Hang in there. We shall overcome. Believe me, it will pass. And that's how I feel, Tom. There's yeah, a I rainbow feel the same at way, the end. Okay, yeah. keep on I, I, pushing, Tom. Okay, I will do that. You too, Bobby. It's always nice to hear from you. Thank you. Daniel in Manchester, New Hampshire. Hey, Daniel, what's up? So I didn't realize that New Hampshire was the first to have the reopen rallies. Or the yes, the official reopen. reopen rallies sponsored by uh, Freedom Works. Yeah. So I thought it was weird that we were the first because we are kind of a swing state. We're about 50-50. But then it hit me. Do you remember one of Donald Trump's earlier chief of staff, Corey Lewandowski? Yeah, who was also his campaign manager. He moved up here. What's that? He was also his campaign manager, wasn't he? When Bannon got fired after uh, Manafort left? Yeah. I don't remember exactly. Like, I, I really remember him because he's the one who shoved that female reporter. But after he was dismissed, uh, probably for something like that, he moved up here to New Hampshire, and there was lots of talk to him running for the Senate to try to take out one of our two female Democratic senators. Yeah. Luckily, he didn't get in. But uh, I wonder if just him being here had something to do with us being the, the first to, to do the reopen rallies. Because, again, we're not the reddest state in the country. We're, you know, we're a 50-50 state. We, we, we're not the biggest we don't have the biggest amount of Trump supporters. Um, what do you no, but you're first in the nation in terms of the elections. Yeah. You know, I, I, that would make sense, Daniel. And I, and I wonder if Lewandowski moving to New Hampshire was part of some kind of a strategy to get ready, get, to get ready for 2024 or even 2020, actually, because this happened in mid-2020, didn't it? Well, no, the primaries I, I were. So. There was I don't no remember primary. if it was during the midterms in 2018 or if I don't know yeah. exactly when he left the cabinet and came up here. But I mean, I know yeah. it's uh, a Republican platform to go for the, the, the small states like us because it's, it's easy to get the electoral votes and they all have two senators. Right. And it's cheaper. You know, I mean, if you want to advertise to everybody in New Hampshire, it costs a fraction of what it would cost if you tried to advertise to everybody in California. Daniel, all good points. Uh, It's fascinating to speculate. I have no idea if there's an association between Lewandowski and that open rally that was the first one, I think, on April 18th. But, Daniel, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. 
We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. Those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment in which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet and even our own existence for granted. But numerous times in our planet's history, life as we know it has come close to disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions. And we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past. And it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion-year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike indicates one of these mass extinctions. Occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70% of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. 
Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Denovian period was capped off by a 20 million year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. That one happened 250 million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions, referred to as the Great Dying. The Permian mass extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The Permian mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the Great Permian mass extinction. But the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today, right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. I wanted to uh, add a few things to the, uh, uh, you know, put, put a few other things on the table for our conversation in addition to the, uh, what I think is very much an open question. And I don't think we're going to know the answer to this or even have a strong inkling of the answer to this until probably December, January of next year, after the 2022 elections, which is, will the Republicans, through legislation and through their ownership of the judiciary, keep in mind, in, in, you know, in Wisconsin, you got you know, right-wing judges striking, striking down voting rights and things like that all the time. Um, will they succeed in hanging on to their power, onto this you know, lost cause 
Southern white racist confederacy. This is all they've got. You know, we're just here for right wing, white right wing racists and and billionaires, white right wing billionaires and the companies that made them rich. I mean, you know, this is that that's the Republican Party. So to add to that conversation, what are those right wing billionaires and the companies that made them rich up to? What they're up to is destroying our planet. This is the op-ed that I wrote today that's published over at HartmanReport.com if you want to get the details and see the links and things. As we're getting more and more vaccinated, Louisa went out this morning, got her second uh, Pfizer shot. Hey, mine's uh, April 11th, so it's, it's coming. You know, it's like by May, you know, hopefully we'll be back in the studio and things will be back more or less to normal. But as we're getting vaccinated, there's this kind of giddy sense of, oh, we're past the worst of it. Well, actually, no. In, in my opinion, the COVID crisis is not just a public health emergency that's the result of one particular virus spreading the globe. If you just, just consider all the diseases that have appeared just in my lifetime, just uh, actually really just in the last 30, 40 years, AIDS, SARS, Zika, Dengue, West Nile, Ebola, Marburg, Lyme disease, every single one of these diseases jumped from the wild into humans. Every single one, they're called zoonotic diseases. Why? Because we're destroying wild places. Our planet is screaming a message to us, and COVID is part of that. It's part of that communication, that the death of nature and the death of us, or all these diseases, are all part of the same thing. Those of you who were listening to this show 10, 15 years ago uh, may well remember that trucker who called in and said, you know, I, I've been driving this uh, route from the southeastern United States up to the Pacific Northwest for decades. And uh, used to be, I used to have to stop every couple hours and clean the bugs off my windshield. I've gone three days without having to clean the bugs off my windshield now. Something's going on. There's something really spooky going on out there. And now there's this uh, insect... And, and a tip of the hat to the person on Twitter who, who pointed this out to me. I'd seen the article before, but it had been a while. It was in Wired magazine. And uh, two scientific studies on the number of insects splattered by cars should give us pause. The first was done on car windshields in rural Denmark. This was from 1997 to 2017. All right, 20-year period. They found an 80% decline in the number of bugs splatting on windshields. Then there was another one that was done in the United Kingdom in the uh, county of Kent in 2019. They compared 2019 to 2004, and they found a 50% decline in bug splats. So then the question was, well, is it possible that back in the day, you know, the cars that are 20, 30 years old hit more bugs? Like they're not as aerodynamic. You know, the wind doesn't go flying around them as easily, and so the bugs end up on the windshield rather than in the, the wash, you know, the, the airstream behind the car. And no, actually, it was the other way around. Uh, this revealed 50%. The research included vintage cars up to 70 years old to see if their less aerodynamic shape meant they killed more bugs. But it found the opposite. Modern cars actually hit slightly more insects. And when the insects are gone, you know, we're all gone. It took 300,000 years for us to get the first billion people in the year 1800. 
The year that Thomas Jefferson was elected president of the United States, there was there were one billion people on planet Earth, and there was only I think 16 or 17 million people uh, of European ancestry on this continent. It took 130 years for the second billion, 1930, the year FDR, well, two years before FDR was elected. The year John Kennedy was sworn in, we hit 3 billion, 1960. The next billion only took 15 years, 1974, the next uh, 14 years, the next, next billion, 13 years, 1987. And now we're, we're closing in on 8 billion people. And we are just, you know, I, I talked about this last week. We're, you know, we are 96% of all the mammals on earth are us and the animals that we eat, our, our livestock. It's mind boggling. In, in, just in my lifetime, 80% of all the wild animals on earth have vanished. 80%. And this is not just a technological problem. This is, in my opinion, this is a cultural problem. We need to seriously consider changing our culture if we're going to do something about this. And now there's legislation that might actually start the process of fixing this. And this is Joe Biden's Build Back Better program. He's saying we want $2 trillion for this. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is saying, hey, how about $10 trillion? I mean, this is going to be sped over a, over a 10-year period. A trillion dollars a year to rebuild America? That's not that much money. Why can't and the Progressive Caucus is with her, by the way, on this. Now, Congress is in recess for two weeks for Easter, this week and next. So now's a good time, actually, to be lobbying your members of the House and Senate to say, hey, you know that uh, $2 trillion that Joe Biden wants for infrastructure? Let's make it $10 trillion. And let's make it all green. Let's stop the fossil fuel pollution. The vast majority of our fossil fuel pollution in the United States, about half of it is coming from transportation, about a quarter of it is coming from housing. We can fix both those things, and we can do it in a single generation. And in fact, this is very popular among voters. They just did a survey on this. They have 54% of voters in a hypothetical question. If this is funded by tax increases on people making over 400,000 bucks and uh, raising the corporate tax rates back where it used to be before Trump became president, two to one Americans vote are in favor of it. Only 13% were undecided. And Biden is saying he doesn't even want to raise taxes on people over 400,000 to pay for it. He wants to entirely pay for it with a corporate, uh, just taking the corporate tax rate back to where it was before Trump. Cool. By the way, I just have to throw this in and share it with you. This is like, you know, what do the Republicans have left? This is what they have left. Uh, the Ever Given container ship. It says Evergreen on big letters. You, you saw, you know, and the name of the ship was the Ever Given, but the word Evergreen was everywhere because apparently that's the company that, that owns the containers. It's actually the company that owns the Ever Given, too. It's the Evergreen Marine Corporation. So this is the new QAnon theory. This is a, a quote from one of the QAnon bulletin boards. So they were like, maybe the boat was tra trafficking children on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Maybe the captain ran it aground as a signal. Why? Because the Secret Service nickname for Hillary Clinton was Evergreen. Therefore, all those containers on that ship, they were all full of children who, you know, Democrats were going to drink their blood. 
These people are nuts. I mean, this is all the Republican Party has to sell to their base is insanity, racism. And hey, we got to help out the billionaires and maybe someday they'll help us out. It's crazy. After the break, I want to tell you about what Amazon is doing with regard to their union thing and Trump's response to uh, Biden's proposal. And I'll and I'll pick up your phone calls. This is the Tom Hartman program. And like I said, if you want my rant on uh, changing our culture and saving the world, it's over at uh, HartmanReport.com. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Just a couple of quick kind of bullet points I want to make, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. A uh, leaked recording. You may have uh, caught this already. It was reported in uh, a number of media. This was a call in which the polling by Frank Luntz, maybe it wasn't Frank Luntz, because it was uh, Grover Norquist who was or they were presenting Grover Norquist's data. They referred to Grover in the phone call. But anyhow, they did a survey and they, this is about H.R. 1, which would blow up the Georgia, you know, just ban black people from voting law. H.R. 1, the For the People Act in the U.S. House of Representatives, and now it's before the United States Senate as SB 1, the law that's going to require the end of the filibuster to pass. They asked regular voters and conservatives... What do you think? And as the guy said on the recording, he said, you know, we polled this and we said, you know, H.R. 1 is going to outlaw billionaires buying elections. Uh, are you in favor of it, opposed to it? And he said, uh, conservatives are overwhelmingly in favor of it. He said, when you give a neutral reading of this bill, this is uh, Kyle McKenzie, the research director for the Coke Run advocacy group Stand Together. He said, when presented with a very neutral description of the bill, people were generally supportive. The most worrisome part is that conservatives were actually as supportive as the general public when they read the neutral description. There's a very, very large chunk of conservatives who are supportive of these types of efforts. This is definitely a little concerning for us. And so what's their solution? They said, we're going to have to double down on our under the dome strategy, which is a fancy way of saying go under the capital dome of individual states or the federal government and pass out money to legislators. Meanwhile, there is a new set of rallies being scheduled for uh, cities all across the United States on April 11th. And these are called White Lives Matter rallies. Right. There's a bunch of these groups that are being now indicted. Their members are being indicted for attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, The rallying cause is, quote, to raise awareness for whites being the victims of massive interracial crime. Right. In the uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia region, there's uh, a couple of self-identified Proud Boys who were pushing this. One of them, a user by the name of James Dagney, which is a name out of Ayn Rand's novel, who shared a documentary about the American Nazi Party founder George Lincoln Rockwell. Another one named Blaine uh, chose the Nazi slogan, Blood and Soil, for their bio. Right. See, you don't think this is about race, really? And finally, in Texas, the Texas Senate, they finally passed this bill that they're sending to the governor, Senate Bill 12. Oh, actually, it's, it's going on to the House. So it's going to require a second reading would prohibit social media companies from blocking, banning, demonetizing, or discriminating against a user if they're a Nazi. 
No, I'm not making this up. It didn't specifically say Nazi. It's based on their viewpoint. But that's really what it's about. Well, you know, the Nazis are really upset and the white supremacists are really upset that Twitter and Facebook are banning them. It's nuts. Paul in Woodenville, uh, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, to answer your question about whether or not this is going to work, that the Republican strategy, I would say this. The Republicans know, and this is what Democrats should be uh, highlighting, the Republicans know that they cannot win in the free marketplace of ideas if they can't obstruct the vote and gerrymander the districts. They know that. And, and in places like Georgia, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence why they know that. In places like Georgia, we just saw Joe Biden won Georgia. This is statewide races, statewide races I'm talking about. Joe Biden won Georgia, and two Democrats won Senate races, uh, which was easily predictable. And, and on election night of, of the Senate races, they were just comparing in each county in Georgia, will, these, will each of the candidates, Warnock and, and uh, uh Will they keep pace with Joe Biden's numbers? And, of course, Stacey Abrams really won the governorship in 2018. The same thing is true in Michigan, where all five statewide race of seats, that would be the governor, secretary of state, attorney general, and two U.S. senators are held by Democrats. And so what the Republican Party is trying to do, what the Confederate Party is doing, literally is they're sandbagging. They see the floodwaters rising, and you have no choice but sandbag or see your basement be full of water. That's what they see coming. And look at this, Tom. This is the funny thing. While they've been talking about this being a Democratic deal, have you noticed that where all of these laws are being changed, the Democrats, or the sorry, the Republicans, have owned the legislature since, since before the Great Flood? You know? There hasn't been a yeah. Democratic legislature in in Georgia since the days of Noah. And yet they scream about, oh, the big steal. And now they realize that they are losing, even though they're the ones that pass the laws. And the laws they really hate, the mail-in ballots, those are laws that were passed in many cases. For instance, I'm thinking of Michigan. I think the, the, the no-excuse absentee voter was pat law was passed in 2018 by a citizens initiative and that's the one they bug them the most they want to get rid of that one and so they're ex they're coming to extremes my mom shared these articles in the detroit free press with me the head of the gop senate uh said that he wanted to challenge governor gretchen whitmer to a fist fight mike Schurton, he's a real macho guy senate, isn't he he wanted to take and on last weekend the head of the GOP in Michigan said that the three top Democratic seats, governor, secretary of state, and AG, these are all women, are witches who should be burned at the stake. That was one thing. And the other one was that the, uh, there were two Republican Congress uh, representatives who voted to impeach Trump that he said they should be assassinated. Right. He has since apologized for those comments. But still, I mean, you know, he let the mask slip. I mean, that's what's going on. And by the way, Kentucky has a Democratic governor. Well, Wisconsin has a Democrat. These are statewide offices. Wisconsin has a Democratic. Yeah. There is a number of states where when statewide elections are held, 
Uh, the Democrats win, but those states send, well, Pennsylvania is a great example, uh, disproportionately. I, I, I don't recall the specific number. There's something like eight to five or something like that. Republicans to Democrats going to the U.S. House of Representatives, even though the majority of the votes statewide were for Democrats. And this is all because of gerrymandering. And this is the last gasp, excuse me, the last gasp of the, of the, of the GOP. I'm with you. And, and the question is, is it going to work? And, the, and the, the big difference that I'm seeing, Paul, between right now and, say, four years ago or five years ago before Trump really uh, you know, gave the media, forced the media to acknowledge that racism is behind so much of what the GOP has been selling since Nixon's Southern strategy, um, that is that is that this is all being done out in public now. The media is calling it out. Five years ago, they were not calling it out. There wasn't a peep about this kind of stuff. When I wrote my book on, on the hidden history of the war on voting, that book was published two years ago. That was, that was like, it, it, it was a topic nobody was talking about in the media or only very rarely. And now it's on the front page, you know, it's on the New York Times. At least, every single day there's an article about it. It's the Associated Press, I mean, just mainstream media. And so I think that this is, at the end of the day, I think this is going to hurt the Republican Party more than help them. What say you? Well, yeah, but I think it will work to the degree that sandbagging works to keep the, the, the creek waters from getting into your basement. They will, it will yep. be successful because, you know, you, it does have some success or people wouldn't do it. But uh, it will take these uh, enormous efforts in Georgia uh, to, you know, to get you have to win so that you can capture the legislature and right. overturn these these laws in in places where there are democratic governors michigan wisconsin they're not going to be able to, to get to slip those through uh so i think that right. uh, and i think there is a redistricting uh, um commission in michigan that's going to prevent them from gerrymandering the way they were i don't know the status of that but I, that right. will be in place by 2022 so I don't. I think in places where they, where they, and we have to realize how important it is to win these races, these these uh, governorships in the states. Is that's what, that's what keeps the the, the Republicans. Well, and, from and and not just voting. the governorships, by the way. The vast majority of yeah. Americans have no idea who represents them in their state legislature. Who is your state right. senator? Who is your state representative? Nine, literally, well over ninety percent of Americans don't know the answer to that question, and and. You know, that's that's where and that's what Stacey Abrams has been addressing down in Georgia, among other things. I mean, as part of as part of her fair vote thing. Um, and and that's one. Of, and that's that's a battle that the Republicans joined in 2008 when Barack Obama became president. Um, that that was when, you know, in, in nine and ten, when they rolled out their whole, you know, take over the local Republican Party, become a, a precinct committee person. Um, you know, let's take over the party from the bottom up. It worked. Democrats now have to do the same thing. Paul, thank you for the call. Very well said. Is this going to work for the Republicans? I'm skeptical. But, you know, like Paul said, if they can hang on to enough power to keep the rules from becoming actual kind of small D Democratic rules, maybe. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with your calls in just a moment. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Karen in Toledo, Oregon. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was t- wanted to talk to you about the HR1, and you made a statement that this was a neutral phrasing of what that bill was. How do you come the, by a neutral phrasing? I didn't do this. Grover Norquist and Frank Luntz did, and they described the bill without any adjectives and just described what it does. It makes it impossible for billionaires to buy elections. Now, if you're a right winger, that could mean to you that George Soros can't buy an election. If you're a left winger, that would mean Charles Koch can't buy an election. They said it would standardize mail-in voting procedures nationwide and allow states that don't have mail-in voting to have mail-in voting. You know, it just basically went through the things that are in the bill. And uh, on this phone call, in which Grover Norquist and his buddies were reporting to Charles Koch and his buddies, or to the Koch network, this was a private phone call held by a bunch of right-wing billionaires. In that phone call, they reported to the right-wing billionaires that this legislation is actually favored when when it is described in neutral terms to voters. Even conservative voters like it. And so the conclusion that they came to on this call, and it was outed by, uh, by Jane Mayer, who wrote Dark Money. She has some deep connections in Cokeland. And the conclusion that they came to is that, therefore, we have to double down on our strategy of, uh, it's called the under the dome strategy, which means, you know, buying votes. That's, that's basically what we've got to do. Bob in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Hey, Bob, what's up? Yes, Tom, I was wondering if the John Lewis uh, voting uh, act goes through, uh, how quickly will the Republicans sue to get it up to the U.S. Supreme Court? 30 seconds. What will there be? I mean, seriously, they have on every single one of these pieces of legislation that would expand voting rights. They have lawsuits all ready to go. And what are the chances the, you know, the Trump appointees plus Roberts and the other unreliable, you know, Republicans on the Supreme Court will vote to turn it down. What are the chances? 
Well, keep in mind, these are the people who looked across the landscape of America back in 2013 and said there's no more racism in America, so it's no longer necessary to have laws to prevent racist election officials from, you know, rigging elections. They were lying then. They knew that they were lying. John Roberts was the head of that line. These right. are not judges. They're partisans. I mean, yes, they're judges. Right. You know, technically, that's their legal job. But they're dancing to a political agenda and have been. I mean, the Supreme Court, frankly, has been dancing to a political agenda since since the founding of our republic. It's gone back and forth. But nine times out of ten, it's conservative. I lay this all out in detail in uh, Hidden History of the Supreme right. Court, the betrayal of America. So... What are, what are the Was that a rhetorical question, that, Bob? No. What are the chances that the Biden and Manchin and all will understand that we have to pack the court ASAP before 2022? Oh, I guarantee you, Biden knows that right now. The question is, you know, what does Joe Manchin know and when did he know it? And I can't no. answer for Joe Manchin. I think he's he's loving his moment in the sun and eventually he's going to come along. That's my opinion. But, you know, I've been wrong about these things before. I hope he doesn't pull a Joe Lieberman. So uh, Amazon has this uh, unionization drive going on down in Alabama. And this from uh, The Guardian. A surge of fake Twitter accounts have emerged to defend Amazon. Gee, I wonder where that happened, right? I mean, is this the Russians? No. Is it the Saudis? No, I don't think so. The Iranians? No. Well, somebody's paying for them. Gee, I wonder who. One now suspended account tweeted, unions are good for some companies, but I don't want to have to shell out hundreds of months just for lawyers. Right. Similar accounts were used when criticism of Amazon went viral in 2018 and 2019, and here we are again. They're exposing these accounts by pointing out that some of the photos associated with them on Twitter, on Facebook, whatever, are actually stock photos. So that's happening. And Donald Trump has weighed in. Joe Biden is proposing, keep in mind, the, the corporate tax rate has not been below 25, 28% in my lifetime. There was very, very brief period. There was a one-year period during the Reagan administration when the capital gains tax and the federal individual income tax were all the way down to 25%. I am pretty sure the corporate tax did not go that low. In fact, I'm quite sure of it. So it's been at 28% or above for a long, long time. Trump dropped it down to 21%. Biden is saying, just take it back up to 28%. Companies were doing just fine before Trump came along. And this is Trump's response. Joe Biden's radical plan to implement the largest tax hike in American history is a massive giveaway to China that will send thousands of factories, millions of jobs, and trillions of dollars to these competitive nation, nations. The Biden plan will crush American workers and decimate U.S. manufacturing while giving special tax privileges to outsourcers, foreign and giant multinational corporations. You know, when Donald Trump is accusing somebody of something, you can pretty much make sure that Donald Trump is the one doing it. His reinvention of NAFTA provides a 25% tax break to any company that ships their factories to Mexico. Not making this up. You can look it up. We've had the people from um, Global Trade Watch on this program talking about it. So anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Barbara in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hi, how are you? Um, I'm calling, what, how long do it take to make D.C. a statehood? What does it take? Because I am concerned about 
the voter suppression issues. I'm thinking mm-hmm. that the only way anything is going to get done is by passing the voters' bill. That's in I the agree. Senate. Because look at what just happened with Mitch McConnell. He went in there and vetoed the governor's, you know, ability to be able to seat someone if something was, you know, to happen to him. Right. And I mean, they come up with with something. They they're on top of everything. They're coming up with a scheme or something to to suppress the vote at every turn. And I was just wondering, with Joe Manchin being you know doing the things he's doing, how what will it take to make Washington D.C. I mean a state to create a state? It requires a majority vote in both the House and Senate. We have a majority in the House. And if Joe Manchin goes along, we have a majority in the Senate, and it would just be that simple. Although in the Senate, it could be filibustered, which is another argument to do with the filibuster. And I would add, Barbara, I'm old enough to remember when Hawaii and Alaska became states. You know, before that, North Dakota, South Dakota. Typically, when we bring states into the union, we've done it two at a time. More than half of the time when we brought states in, it's been uh, twofers. And I think it should be, uh, frankly, I think it should be D.C. and Puerto Rico. But that's kind of a side discussion. But it could be done as soon as the filibuster is eliminated. Frankly, I think that that can't happen fast enough. Barbara, thank you for the call. It's a great question. I appreciate it. Tim in Lawrence, Kansas. Hey, Lawrence, what's up? I was wondering if the H.R. 1 would also include the end of voter suppression for state things like Georgia. What they're doing, would this H.R. 1 eliminate their efforts? Largely, not entirely. They're doing a number of things that are not encompassed under H.R. 1, but the vast majority and the most evil of the stuff they're doing, yes, it would be eliminated by passing H.R. 1. Excellent. And then, well, I'm in Kansas, and they're trying to do the same thing here since they have a Republican majority. But then the other thing I have, of course, is this ending the filibuster or at least modifying it so these minorities, the GOP, do not have so much clout to override the will of the people. uh, This is the big question, and uh, they're going to have to satisfy Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, maybe Dianne Feinstein or a few others. I mean, there have been some Democrats who have said that they kind of like the filibuster, and the question is, can we pull this off? One middle ground is to to simply update the filibuster and take it back to the Jimmy Stewart, I call it, you know, filibuster. Mr. Smith goes to Washington where, yeah, you can slow down the Senate. You can even stop the Senate as long as you're talking. But you've got to have at least 40 people sitting in the Senate gallery and somebody has to be continuously speaking. And when they are done, when they sit down, a vote does happen. Tim, thank you. Tom Hartman program. And if I was betting money, I would bet that that's what they're going to do. They're going to bring back the talking filibuster and that way they can get it through. And, And that's what, you know, this vacation is going to be devoted to bending arms, twisting arms. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our selection today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. This is from Chapter 1. It's about halfway through the chapter. He's talking about Bernard DeVoto. DeVoto was the first major historian of the West who was also an environmentalist and an activist, the first chronicler of what Wallace Stenger called the West's curious desire to rape itself. DeVoto was a Westerner raised in Utah. He suffered in the provincialism and intolerance of Mormon country, went east to study, and then teach at Harvard, settled in Cambridge, 
but never forgot the beauty of his native ground. Loving the land and history, said a magazine profile, but loathing the society. His histories, novels, criticism, his essays in Harper's Magazine, where for 20 years he wrote the oldest column in American journalism, Easy Chair, pointed always west. His trilogy, published in the 1940s, The Year of Decision Across the Wide Missouri and the Course of Empire, garnered the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award. Widely celebrated, Devoto used his position to become his generation's most outspoken defender of the public lands. He called the West a plundered province, a resource colony for corporations and absentee landlords who practiced, quote, an economy of liquidation. He was broad in his assault on the liquidators. He went after the timbermen, the mining companies, the stockmen, the cattle barons, the oilmen and gasmen, the overgrazers, the deforesters, the denuders, the profiteers of gold rushes and grass rushes. He named the bankers and congressmen who abetted the plundering. The Western hogs, he called them. They'd been busy for a century laying waste to the West. Long before the public domain was vested with any permanence legally in the hands of the American people, before there was a consideration of the land itself or any environmental ethic, the West had been torn up, beaten down, subjected to the greed and profligacy of the commodity users. Ironically, the users in their race to liquidate helped drive the creation of the public land system we know today as they proved the need for federal stewardship to stop their abuses. Massive timber frauds in the 19th century, the largest land fraud seen in the West, led directly to the establishment of the Forest Service in the 20th century, its purpose to stop deforestation. Out-of-control cattle numbers in the steppe, overgrazing that turned the fragile soil to dust, led directly to the federal grazing regulatory system that eventually became the BLM. When in 1946 the commodity users conspired to destroy the public land system, the system in which devotos saw the only hope for Western conservation and preservation, he stood to oppose them. Quote, he was the first conservationist in nearly half a century, except for Franklin D. Roosevelt, to command a national audience, said Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a student of his at Harvard. No one did more in the post-war years to rouse public opinion against the spoilers than Devoto. Devoto and Schlesinger had seen firsthand what unregulated industry could wreak in the arid lands when they drove cross-country together in the spring of 1940 and entered western Kansas past the 100th meridian. These were the last years of the Dust Bowl before FDR's soil conservation programs and the return rains of the 40s could heal the land. Wrote Devoto, a cemetery was 10 inches deep in sand. Half the headstones had toppled into it and been partly covered. Sagging shacks that had been farmhouses had their windows blown out and dust was two or four or six feet deep against their western walls and a foot deep against the far wall. A repulsive dust as fine as sifted flour. Now, six years after that trip with Schlesinger, Devoto was confronted with the West's cattle barons, the liquidators of the grass, who were hell-bent on reducing the region to the same mess of dust. In 1946, the Joint Committee on Public Lands of the American National Livestock Association met in Salt Lake City to discuss the goal of undermining what few regulations had been placed on livestock operators under the newly formed Bureau of Land Management. The stock growers' ambition went further than mere deregulation. They hatched a plan, with the help of friends in Congress, to begin moving all federal land, the BLM and Forest Service domain, as well as the national parks, into the control of the states. The plan evolved through 1946, 47, 48, 
with legislation making its way on Capitol Hill. DeVoto covered the story for Harper's. He cautioned that the stock growers were attempting, quote, one of the biggest land grabs in American history. The public lands are first to be transferred to the states on the wholly justified assumption that there should be a state government not wholly compliant to the desires of stock growers. It could be pressured into compliance, he wrote in Harper's. Nothing in history suggests the, the states are adequate to protect their own resources, or even want to, or suggests that cattlemen and sheepmen are capable of regulating themselves even for their own benefit, still less the public's." End quote. The long-term plan, he said, was to get rid of the public lands altogether, to place the common possession of the American people into private hands. The livestock industry went on the attack, mounted a PR campaign to discredit DeVoto, and pressured Harper's to cease its support. Unmoved, the magazine continued for three years to publish his relentless exposés of the intrigues in the state houses and in the Western Caucus. DeVoto had convinced the editors, when no other publication that mattered in the East cared, that the threat of such land transfer was an existential one. This Land by Christopher Ketchum. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.